This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, can we prove the existence of ghosts with old 100-year-old photos and ectoplasm? Serena Kashabji is an author and a professor at the University of Winnipeg, coordinator of art history who has been researching almost 700 photographs of ghosts made in Winnipeg 100 years ago. She helps us understand their history and why they could be convincing evidence of the paranormal. There's also an art show that's come of it, so it's all been reinvented too. Handy Andy Barrar brings us a harvest of gardening tips. The DIY expert tells us how to get the most out of our old soil and some just overall gardening conversation. Plus, would you consider putting coffee grounds around your bird feeder to keep squirrels away? And are you okay with school band and bars and CEOs? All of this and more on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Okay, we make jokes about ghosts. We really do. But we all know Slimer from Ghostbusters. And when you say the word ectoplasm, I didn't really know that was actually a real word. I kind of assumed it was a Hollywood statement about slimy, goobery, unexplained things. But it turns out that there's a a world where art and ectoplasm collide, where photography and ghosts collide, where belief systems get interrupted with evidence and also doubt. So this is, uh, this is the cool part. You can't have belief without having doubt. And if you dance with both, you really can enjoy the conversation. And that's what I'm hoping for you right now. A conversation that might stretch from Slimer to art exhibits. Strange, I know. Serena Kishavji is our guest here on The Shift. And Serena is a professor at the University of Winnipeg. Serena, you uh, do art, architectural history, all that out of it, and somehow you have fumbled upon through art, studying about ghosties and ectoplasm. Um, didn't see that one coming, I'm sure. No, I actually I did because I start all my research in the archives. That's where you find forgotten histories, suppressed histories, lost histories. So I always start there. And what I noticed with this archive at the University of Manitoba is that all kinds of artists were responding to it. So I'm an art historian and I was like, okay, what's going on here? Why are all these artists sort of buzzing around? So I sort of did a deep dive and what I found were these almost 700 photographs of ectoplasmic excretions or emissions coming from these mediums made in Winnipeg from 1920 to about 1935. And I immediately noticed that they were aesthetically interesting, they were technically very sophisticated, and maybe a little bit uncanny. Mm. So I saw that they were visually compelling, and that's, as an art historian, that's what I do. Um, So I researched them, and then I reached out to these artists to say, you know, what are you doing? How are you using these? How are these the basis for your new art? And that's what the exhibition is, as well as the book, um, The Art of Ectoplasm. It's two things kind of coming out at the same time. Yeah, that's cool. We will talk about both of those things. Can you describe for us this series of photos from 100 years ago that I have not seen them? Here's what I imagine, Serena. I imagine they're black and white photos and there are mysterious blobs and things in the photos 
that um, one could probably dismiss on lens flares, light strange, uh, strangeities, um, bits and pieces like that. But then there seems to be such a pattern of them over so many photos that um, have so much in common that it's also hard to dismiss it as some sort of uh, random technical error. So can you describe for us what is in the photos that makes them so interesting? Okay, so um, you're right, they're from 100 years ago, so they are black and white, but they're not lens flares or little accidents or flashes on the screen. They're nothing like that. They're actually close-ups of a medium, in this case, Mary Marshall, um, excreting or admitting a very thick paste-like white organic substance from her mouth, her eyes, her ears. Hmm. Um, so they're not at all ephemeral or veily or picturesque. They're actually very organic. And that was one of the things that interested me. Why are they so weighty and heavy? And they don't look like the traditional rending of a ghost, which is something that sort of dematerializes. Um, and you also mentioned, you know, Ghostbusters earlier, that um, slime is ectoplasm, you know, Hollywood's version of ectoplasm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know this, but Dan Aykroyd, who wrote that film, his great grandfather was a spiritualist and knew about the Hamilton um, photographs. And oh, really? so he based that movie on his family's archive, by the way. So... Um, this incredible history all across Canada, North America, and all across Europe is just not that well known unless you almost have a personal into it. So Ghostbusters comes out of the same parallel situation as the Hamilton archive. And I think you summed it up nicely, like ectoplasm is silly, but it's also a little bit scary and a little bit sacred, right? Because actually, mm -hmm. is there a ghost communicating between there? Well, it does lead me to believe to the word uh, appropriate or not, you can tell me, but it does lead that sort of possession haunting part if it's presenting in the way that you describe it, coming out of mouths and noses and eyes and those things. And that, that leads uh, the mystery and the scary part to go, well, wait a second, what was going on in the background there to cause this to be? Now, I'm assuming um, there's not a lot of ectoplasm labs around the world that are researching these things. So it must be difficult to, to learn this or, or is it quite easy? Well, there's not, you know, after World War II, the concept of ectoplasm fell out of favor. Um, but before World War II, I would say from the 1890s to about 40, um, 1940, ectoplasm was being studied seriously in laboratories in a handful of places in Paris, London, Munich, um, Winnipeg, and Boston. And they were studying it very seriously. The Hamiltons understood themselves as scientists. They were not spiritualists. They rejected that term. They were scientists testing mediums to look for examples of the invisible psychic force, which is what helped bring out that plasm through which a discarnate personality could communicate. And I know that sounds very technical, but that is what they said. They never used the word ghost or spirits, never. This was a scientific endeavor looking for the invisible psychic force. Yeah, that's like using the word anomaly when you don't know what it is in the in the research data because you don't want to create some sort of conclusion that is inaccurate or biased. Um, and I, so I think it's good. I think that's helpful to, to, to hear it that particular way. Where does it land for you, Serena, when you see this? I mean, um, 
it, it comes from a place of, you know, ghosts and hauntings and all the things. Do you allow yourself the, the look at it and what lands in your gut with it? I ask this question with intention because if it's going to inspire artists, that means it is being interpreted somewhere in the struggle of humanity and all things art. So uh, how we see it and how we process it and interpret it would certainly lead to that step. How does it land for you? I mean, you are a art, art historian. So I think there's a few things in your question. I mean, I will say that Dr. Hamilton described his own photographs as ugly but beautiful. He described them as monstrously extraordinary. And um, there is a whole genre in art history of the grotesque or the uncanny or the abject where something is disgusting but somehow compelling. Um, the surrealist did this. You know, a lot of the surrealist artwork is is really hideous or it is based on like organic emissions, but somehow that is attractive to us in, in a certain way. So I was definitely, as an art historian who knows how to look at art, I was attracted to the beauty but ugliness in these images. And I think that's what a lot of the artists are too. So that's the first point. The second point though is, um, there is a sense of comfort in believing that discarnate personalities can communicate. And a lot of the artists I'm working with are open. They're open to the spirit world. They're open to ancestors. They're open to forces that are around us that are beyond our everyday materialistic, scientistic world. Um, and so they were interested in exploring this and making art from it. And, you know, we're coming out of our own pandemic period. You know, Dr. Hamilton started this in 1923. That's a few years after the 1919 pandemic, which hit Winnipeg hard. And I think there is a sense of comfort in a bereavement ritual, which makes you think maybe there's something more after death. Mm. So, I, so I know he was working around those notions as well. Yeah, that's interesting to say that, you know, I don't need to, the way that I hear that um, through my own listening is, I don't need to explain it, but I feel like it's kind of all right, you know? Uh, that's right, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I'm saying. And I'm yeah. not interested in figuring out, like I've looked at the glass plates, there's no forgery on those plates, I can tell you that. Oh. And that's enough for me. I don't know exactly what happened, but a lot of people took comfort. A lot of people, you know, in Winnipeg, it was all the elite settlers sitting at his table working with him very important men and women and they took comfort in this they were interested in it they took some comfort in it they thought it was worthwhile testing and so i'm looking at it as a cultural phenomenon what brought all these people together what are they doing how are they explaining it and that for me is really interesting as this sort of lost history i mean if you know nobody knows that this went on it's not that well known across canada it's not even that well known uh, around winnipeg that someone was testing for ghosts essentially for 12 years in elmwood you know off henderson highway mm -hmm. well winnipeg's geographic history uh, way back in time with indigenous story is so deep that's fascinating to me you've spoken about and i don't even know if this is part of your purview with this but it, i'm going to honor the fact that it does come up 1920 1923 1925 that was a big era of change. In fact, if ever we really could connect to that, um, electricity was coming into people's homes and that scared a lot of people as well. And it's kind of like today with AI, right? The way that I wrote about electricity um, and AI in, in conversation with some friends was that pretending to pretending to know what electricity would look like, actually, let me just grab it so I can be exactly accurate. 
Believing you know what AI is going to do to our world is like thinking you could have possibly known that one day you'd be reading this on an iPhone as electricity was getting wired into your house for the first time in 1920. It was a big era of change and it pushed so much forward. We saw contemporary as we know it as contemporary. Jazz music, the flappers, electricity, cocktails, everything started to change through life in that era. There was a lot going on. So the openness to change might have been strong. Have you noticed that? And have you noticed it being different from the Hamilton study uh, versus everything that's going on in and around Manitoba and Winnipeg that you've learned? So, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the people that Hamilton communicated with is Sir Oliver Lodge, who's credited with inventing wireless telegraphy, which is the basis of our phones today. This is a man who was a physicist who was so smart that he figured out how to send wireless messages, which became, you know, um, the telegraph and became the telephone and became how we live today, first through the radio and now everything that we do. That was a man who was writing to the Hamiltons, discussing spiritualism with them. So you're making this comparison of these new technologies that were coming in that people were very new, and there was a lot of them, from electricity to the X-ray to the telegraph. They're pouring in. They're very exciting, and they're revealing unseen worlds. Or you can talk. You can speak to someone over a distance. Imagine the X-ray. I can, with a certain light, I can see the bones in my hand. And Dr. Hamilton used this. Why he was able to find a new technology, a new technology which is the camera and which is um, the flash, to show us that there's an invisible force out there that we just hadn't discovered. Just like electricity, it was a new force, and he was going to help us discover it. So he took solace in things like um, the telegraph and um, electricity as new inventions that changed our world. And he thought he was doing that as well. And I think you're right. There are these, not just the technological and industrial changes, there are also lots of different kind of societal shifts happening in the late 19th, early 20th century, including the war, including the pandemic. And these shifts make people uneasy. And I do feel that we are going through our own shift right now, climate change, post-pandemic, um, reliance on technology, too much reliance on our phone, AI, these are all shifts and they unsettle us. And we reach out to different things to comfort us and thinking, and, and in the 20th century, that was thinking that the departed could communicate with us, especially after the losses of World War One and the losses of the pandemic, right? Yeah, there's so a, lot of, a lot of loss in a row. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that does make total sense. Thank you for that. Okay, well, as a historian, put your historian hat on here. I have recently discovered for myself that problem solving is better if we do it one way versus another. If we are in a problem today, Serena, you and I, and we're trying to reconcile things that have happened in our relationship, in our family, whatever. If we go from today backwards, we still run into bias, bias, bias. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? If we go back to the very beginning of our relationship or our family time or whatever, and we start there, and then we study what happened from the beginning to today, we get clarity. We don't run into bias the same way because we go from the beginning and we start to see other people's perspective as they, as they made decisions. So as a historian, is that an integral part of this to not necessarily look backwards, but to go back to the very beginning 
It's also a psychology technique. And then come from the beginning to today, to today. Well, I mean, that's what, you know, I mentioned at the, the beginning of this interview that I start all my research in the archives. That's what archives yeah. are. They're, you know, there's always biases and everything. We know that. But archives are, especially at the University of Manitoba in the Archives and Special Collections, there's thousands of sheets of paper and hundreds of photographs that were put together without any commentary. I looked at raw data that the Hamiltons produced over these, you know, 12 years with from their point of view and then i put it together but i then decide i looked at all that then i looked to see who else was studying it and then i went and read books by other people from the same period i saw what was in his library i saw his notes and then i saw how his daughter a number of years later put together the collection to give it to the archive so it is raw data it really is raw data so you get to look at it fresh I brought my own biases to it for sure, but there's enough secondary literature on those changes in the 19th and 20th century that I was able to figure out what some of his um, impetuses might have been to for him to land up doing this place. But just his own writing, you know, he was a good Christian. He was a Presbyterian. He was a leader in his church. And he thought that the Bible actually proves that life exists after death. But that they just weren't um they weren't disseminating this enough and that his studies were going to help all christians around the world believe that life continued immortality heaven a concept of heaven and that's what his big picture was right so mm -hmm. something actually very comforting we wouldn't we all want to know that life continues yeah or yeah and what's this what's the secret right just do this snap your fingers twice and you're good a little evidence to make everybody feel better. But that, that goes back to your point of saying that there was an awful lot of loss with the war and the pandemic at the time. That peace of mind certainly would have been welcome. That's for sure. Uh, Serena Kishavji is our guest here, art historian, University of Winnipeg. Uh, okay, well, ectoplasm in photos. It's tough to prove that it, that's what it is, but it is occurring. It is evident and it is inspiring artists today. So how does that work that the, um, for you, that you see that this is translated into the beauty of art, especially with Winnipeg artists? So that was one of the things that I kind of surprised me when I was doing this research, that I was coming across all these artists. Um, and a few things happened, I think, to put this in place. One, I think the photos themselves are very aesthetically compelling and interesting. And so people are drawn to them. But beyond that, the archive, the photographs were digitized in 2001 by uh, the former head of the archives, Dr. Shelley Sweeney. And that was a very, very good move. 2001 to have digital material is very early in Canada. So she took the time and the effort and the money and she put them online. And then as the web just exploded, people found them. They found them by doing searches and they're very high quality photographs with all the you know information around them. And that's what artists were drawn to. They also did a video, a YouTube video in 2008, which I'm also told is quite early. So those simple moves disseminated it far and wide and many, many artists discovered it that way. Um, and then some of them came to Winnipeg, they traveled to Winnipeg, they applied for grants and they saw them in person. Some of them just worked with them digitally forever. So the art of ectoplasm then and the undead archive, which are the two things that are happening in this next week, I reached out to all those artists. They've shipped their work here. Some of them are traveling here um, this week to open the exhibition. Um, some of them have just sent their work. They couldn't make it here, but we have over 25 artists who have worked with the Hamilton photographs directly. 
and they've made art. So anyone who's in Winnipeg can come to see the show this week. It's in three venues across the city. Um, and I think they will be pleasantly surprised by this fantastic contemporary art in all media, by the way, in analog film, in digital film, in stop motion, in paint, in crochet, in felted wool, anything you can imagine. We have a version of it in ectoplasm. That's absolutely wild. It does. I guess that's the struggle of humanity, right? What comes first, the chicken and the egg? In this particular case, what comes first, the art of the science? That That's really the humanity in a nutshell. Okay, now you, you have uh, your art book coming out, Serena. Uh, help us understand what that looks like and, and when can we see it? The book should be out by November 1st. I think we just uploaded it to the printers on Friday. Oh, it's congratulations. That must yeah, have felt great. Was, eh? We're there. We're almost there. The Art nice. of Ectoplasm. There are nine chapters. I do a few of them, but I also invited a few people. So one person you might be interested in is Dr. Murray Leader, who is a film historian who's done a chapter on ectoplasm and cinema or film. Of course, he talks about Ghostbusters, but there's a number of other films who have actually, some of them have directly used the Hamilton photos. Others, he's just talking about how ectoplasm has become a gag in Hollywood, just the way you started. So I have uh, Casey Adams, a local indigenous artist, has done um, a poem kind of comparing the settler project that I'm working on with her own interest in ancestors and ancestor communication and how um, spirits, indigenous spirits went up to Thunderbird. So that's a chapter in the book. I have a number of archivists who have worked with this material. Some of them for 20, 30 years have contributed to the book. I have um, a young woman who just has finished her PhD who's looked at some of the women involved. Women often tend to get the short shrift. So Dr. Hamilton was married to Lillian Hamilton, a trained nurse. She worked with him as a collaborator. There's no doubt they worked together side by side. And then when he passed away, she continued the experiments to 1944. So there's an experiment by her. Um, Dr. Essel Jones, a very, very respected historian, is looking at the pandemic and what was going on around in terms of the history of Winnipeg and the Hamilton's more quiet, intimate family circle. So how does a family deal with loss? She's done a chapter on that. So I may have forgotten some chapters. My last chapter is all about art, but there are nine chapters from a variety of points of view dealing with um, ectoplasm and the Hamiltons themselves. Uh, I trust you'll get us a link so we can share that with our listening community um, and the shift heads here. Yeah. And so we can do that. Uh, let me give you a little insight, Serena, into my world. A great conversation. You leave it with more questions than when you started. And that's how I feel. Uh, thanks to your insight. Thank you so much for sharing with me. I appreciate you. You're welcome. Thanks for reaching out. This is the Shift Podcast. Well, Andy's my go-to, my gardening advice, and uh, loves the garden. And uh, it's that time of year. Now, you folks on the West Coast, you guys get a couple more months here, I think, of your, your cool cool veggies that grow and you can still keep growing things. We can't. It starts to freeze at nighttime here really quick. And so because of timing and in a couple of weeks, I'm not going to be here. So I needed to get the tomatoes out, Andy. So I went and pulled all the tomatoes and 
and all the things, and there's a lot of green ones. The whole kitchen counter, they're ugly. I yeah. mean, I bet they're they're they've got great personalities, but they're ugly. And I really makes me grateful how for how perfect. It also the food is in the grocery store, but at the same time, are we ever vain with our food? Like we want perfect tomatoes only. My my tomatoes would not qualify. I think there's one that could probably be sold in a grocery store. Yeah, I think that's the you know we're, we our our um, our notion of what a, of what things are supposed to look like are so distorted because in the grocery store they just look so pristine and perfect like bananas. The bananas in the grocery store do not look like that in real life when you go, you know, to any country that, that grows bananas. And when you start to garden, you start to realize just how imperfect the fruits and vegetables that you grow are. I have the same thing, Shane. Uh, my tomatoes are, are kind of weird looking, you know, but they're delicious. There's nothing better than eating a fresh tomato. Um, and so, yeah, it is that harvest season. Everything in my garden is kind of coming to an end. I, I haven't pulled anything out yet. Uh, I was waiting for October. I thought October for me is that sign where Halloween's coming. It's time to clean up your gardens. And one thing that a lot of people have is potting soil. Whether you're growing indoors or outdoors, people use potting soil. And the big question is, when your plants are dead, what do you do with all that soil? A lot of people will just kind of throw it away or something, but you can recycle it. And with the cost of living and a lot of people trying to grow their own food, I'm all about recycling the potting soil and using it again. One suggestion, and I saw this guy online do it, is he'll just take hot water and he'll put it through all the potting soil, let it cool down, then he'll use it the following year. And so I'm going to try that because usually what I would do with potting soil, especially for plants that I had maybe indoors uh, or even just on my deck in in pots is I would put it in the raised garden beds outside. So they would become outdoor soil. And of course, you're never supposed to use the outdoor soil indoors because when you buy potting soil, it's a combination of topsoil, cocoa, peat, moss, and other various nutrients. But you can add fertilizer to it again for the next year and keep that soil going year after year. What Shane, what do you do with all the soil that you have in your tomato plants and everything like that? Uh, this year I moved it to a, a garden bed. So it's yeah. in, in a, a ray. It's not off the ground, but you know, it's above the ground, but it's not off yeah. the ground. So it's touching the ground. It's, it's got a wood fence thing. I don't Yeah. <laughs> um, I have uh, totes like rubber made totes is what I used to do is when I would pull things out of the pots in yeah. the past, I would, shake all the dirt out into the Rubbermaid totes, put the root balls or whatever the, the garbage was into the uh, green bin, and then I would just save the dirt. But I, inside the totes, then you can let them leave the lid off for a little bit and let it all yeah. dry. And usually by the time you go to use it in the spring, for me anyway, it would be so dry, like it's bone dry at that bone point. Bone dry, yeah. Yeah, and so you got to be you got to add water kind of slowly and, and stuff because otherwise it just turns into soup. Yeah, but the, that, that's um, what I do. But I don't even know what I'm doing. I mean, I'm the guy who goes and buys a bag and you know puts it in a tote and leaves it in his garage for the winter. I I don't really know. Well, you're doing something right with a tote because I actually, you know, after years of gardening, I was like, you know, I need somewhere to like store all the soil. And what I like to do is I'll try to buy it separately. So I buy this stuff called Pro Mix, but then also buy cocoa and peat moss because. It just absorbs water better, so you don't have to water as much. And 
and it's, now I have you, separate totes for all of them. watering things. I know, I know. Like, and a lot of people overwater too much. And typically with plants, what you wanted to do is it should go through that. You know, it should be completely wet, and then you wanted to get it relatively dry, and then you water it again. I try to give the analogy with people. I'm like, you know, everyone thinks more water should be better, but it's like you try to drink water all day long, see what happens. Mm. You know, if you have too much water, it's you just it actually can kill you. It, it, it can, yes. The, I know um, people can get intoxicated if you have too much water. Just yeah, the pH you. levels, water poisoning. Right? Yep, yep. There was um, so this is how my mom always said it to me. Stick your finger in the soil. If the dirt sticks to your finger, it has enough water. If it doesn't stick to your finger, then it desperately needs water. Uh, and so that's what I do. I just walk up to the garden and stick my finger in. And if some of the dirt sticks to my finger and there's moisture there, then we are you good. You know, uh, there's this high tech product. I can't remember. I had it years ago, and it's it's a it's got a two prong thing. You put it into the soil. It connects to your Wi Fi network. You download an app. And it can tell you in real time the moisture level inside of the soil and then give you a push notification to when you need to water your plants, you know. So hmm. you know, there's always a tech solution for something as simple as just watering your plants. But your mom's, uh, you know, trick is, is what a lot of people use. But just, you know, if you're getting started with gardening or just planting something, you know, you just moderation in all things. It, it works out for most people. Uh, it does uh, many different ways other than gardening too, Andy. Good advice right there. Um, you recycling dirt. I mean, obviously that seems like a bit of a no brainer. How the secrets are going about it. We're learning. We have this note here. It says coffee grounds, bird feeders. And uh, I don't know what any of that means. I know that there's some different opinions on coffee grounds and reusing them in acidity and pH and all these things. So uh, are you, are you trying to grow birds now? No. So uh, my next door neighbor, she has a pole in her backyard and has a bird uh, feeder on there, right? Little, And then I see all the birds come up there. But I noticed when she's at work, I saw this squirrel jump from a tree right onto there and just stuffing his face with all of the bird seeds into it, right? And then I was like, do I tell her this? You know, like, you know, because she keeps putting more extra bird seeds in there. And then this squirrel comes every day and takes it. So I found this really cool trick. I've never tried this before, but apparently you can use coffee grounds. And if you put it underneath where you have a, a, a bird feeder or anything like that, where the squirrels are coming, they won't get close to that. They do not like the smell of coffee grounds. So it's a great thing. So if you have like a pole like she does, you sprinkle about one inch of your old coffee grounds. Could be caffeinated or decaffeinated, does not matter. You put it around there. And they just cannot handle that smell and then they will leave it. So I'm actually going to test this out with her. Rather than tell her, I was going to just be like, hey, I noticed I saw a squirrel coming there. You might want to use your coffee grounds and then see if that that works. And it's also other insects uh, as well do not like the smell uh, of coffee grounds. Plus, there's lots of nitrogen in it. So if you're putting it on your grass and stuff, it should help make your grass greener. So a lot of people use coffee grounds in their gardens, but it looks like you could also help it to deter squirrels from getting into your, um, you know, into your bird feeder. Are you sure? Maybe we should just all use decaffeinated coffee for this just in case. Cause do we really need caffeinated squirrels running around just in case? <laughs> well, the, the one thing is you might want to avoid the caffeinated one if you have pets. So cats or dogs, because they can get affected by the caffeine if somehow they 
they uh, ingest it. But other than that, you know, from from what I've been told, I actually wanted to try this out because, as you know, Shane, I have these squirrel picnic tables. I built a whole bunch during the lockdown, and I would put like. Most people are trying to get squirrels out of their yard. You're making videos about squirrels having picnics. Well, yeah, you know, I saw it online and I got the the designs for it. And I was like, you know what? I have some old lumber around. I'm going to create this squirrel picnic tables. And I put them on my fence. And for cheap entertainment, I would just put like anything like kitchen scraps, a banana peel or, or something on there. I even took an apple and just left an apple on there. And I'd watch these squirrels eat it. So now with these coffee grounds, I was like, what if I take like peanuts, right? Make a nice little, you know, a dessert or something or whatever squirrel's favorite meal, but then surround it with the coffee grounds to see if it will still go over there and try it out. Because, you know, you hear about these tricks on the internet, but now I'm like, oh, this will be a nice little science experiment and see if the squirrels will actually go towards that, that, that uh, picnic table, squirrel picnic table to get the nuts. So uh, I think I'm going to do that in the spring once the weather gets better. Uh, that's what you came for. Uh, squirrels and picnic tables here on the shift. Always a surprise. Uh, text from Teeny in Calgary, Shane, Ryan, Jono, and Andy. Tomato hack from Merrill on QR in Calgary. They do a gardening show on um, on Sundays. Thanks for that, Tina. Actually, they used to come on after me. There was a season there that I did that show before them. It says, pick your tomatoes in the morning. They're sweeter before the sun hits them. Something to do with sugar storage in the plant. Oh, that's a good tip. Did not know that. Yeah. Hey, so one thing I'm going to try this year, Shane, another thing that I learned, because I've been growing a lot of pepper plants. And if you've ever tried to grow a pepper plant from seed, boy, oh boy, does it take forever. It takes like three weeks for it to just germinate. Then you have to let it grow even before it starts to produce the pepper. But I saw online of Lady, what she did, she pulled it all out out of the ground. This was outside, shook all the soil off. So it's just the root put it into a pot and brought it back indoors. And then she has a light on it and you can then, you know, keep it alive inside and then replant it outside later on. So mm. great trick, except what are you going to do if you have a lot of these pepper plants? You almost need like an indoor garden, you know, to handle them because they're, they're pretty large. And, uh, but it's a great little trick if you want to keep those peppers coming without having to grow from seed again. I can answer that question as a guy who has nine pineapple plants that are like four feet wide each. Just fill your living room and let people find their way. That's and it. What, do you, what, what are you using for lights? LED lights for those pineapple LED plants? LED bulbs, yep. And do you have it on a timer or anything like that? Hi, Andy. I have it on my smart home kit timer. Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> You'd be proud of me, buddy. Oh, I am. Those, um, those smart plugs are like the best thing if you are trying to grow indoors. Easy to set a light on it, yep. you know, on your phone, you can set the schedule and then boom, it's a, it's just on its own little schedule. And if you're trying to do with flowering plants, you can then change the schedule to make it go into a flower mode uh, as well. So yeah, if you want to start growing indoors, get yourself one of these smart plugs. Yeah, um, It's the best way to control lights. You remember the old school timer, Shane, where they had oh, the yeah, dial the on it? Yeah. Um, I, um, so what I do is I use the bulbs you buy them at Home Depot. They're not great. They've got to be really close to the plant. And if they get to, it's like a real threshold. If they get too close, they'll burn it. But if they're too far away, they don't give them much, but just a basic tin, uh, lampshade thing on there. And then actually with the smart plug, even further than that, I have a TV watch TV setting because I have them on my living room. So if I walk in the living room, want to watch TV, it actually will turn off the, the LED lights so it doesn't glare on the TV screen. And then when I'm done watching TV, it turns them back on again. Oh, so that's great. 
This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with... 877-399-9898. That number also at shiftheads.ca for you to share your thoughts on these stories that make us ponder anyway. Are you okay with... School band. I totally clicked on the wrong tab. I'm here. Uh, School band. Thank you. Happy to be here. School band. I was never in band. I was a drama kid. However, interacted with lots of band kids. My brother was a band kid. And uh, I was always jealous because they always got to go on trips. Like every Mm. year, they like, oh, we're going to Disney World for a week part of school we get to go to disney world and just perform i would have stuck with the recorder if it meant that i got a free trip to disney world in high school and i feel a little cheated that all i got was a lousy stage performance of anything goes while my friends were off partying in in uh in disney world with the band nerds yeah the recorder wouldn't have got you there if that makes it easier mind yeah uh, yeah, I mean, as a, a band person, when I was in band, our our band teacher did band things. We always had the best teachers, but we weren't great bands. We we did the class and we learned things. There was a, other bands in our city that went to band for extra practice before school started. Mm. They were good. We were not good. And then as mm. being a parent that had kids in band... I remember this time where my son and his buddy playing the saxophone, which was cool because they actually he actually played my same saxophone that I played back in the day. He, they oh. they played the song at their own tempo, oh. different from the band, to the point where the oh. band conductor, the nice. teacher, had to stop the performance and tell them to stop it and then start the song over again. Like, what I'm over saying again? is it was terrible is what I'm saying. And um, it was absolutely terrible. So, you know, I've my daughter's been in some band stuff that is just dreadful, and then she's been in other band things that is really great. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a gamble. You never know what yeah. you're in for. If you go into it expecting for it to go well, I think you're going to be let down for a band concert, high school band concert, school band concert. If you're going into it thinking it's going to be good, no. But if you're going into it just admiring the fact that there's making music ish that's cool it kinda, i think it's awesome you know every now and then it all comes together and it's like oh that sounded good just not always now one particular band show in the states ended up well it ended with a very unexpected crescendo last week a jefferson county high school band director found uh, was arrested last night following a football game. Police say minor high school band director Johnny Mims refused to listen to the request to stop playing after the game concluded. They then claimed that Mims pushed one of the officers, who then responded by tasing and arresting Mims. He was booked last night into the Birmingham City Jail, but has since bonded out. Bonded out. Ooh, mm-hmm. fancy terms. Banded so, out. He's he's directing the band, doesn't stop, so he shoves a police officer, they tase him. How fast does the tempo of the song start to go when your conductor's <laughs> stick is being tased? It's got to be like a Bugs Bunny sketch where the, the orchestra just goes Very with good. wherever the wand goes, right? That's where they go. 
That's very good. TikTok footage of the confrontation shows an intense scuffle between police, the band director, and onlookers before Mims was eventually subdued. Uh, in front of the kids, a woman can be heard shouting in the video as the stun gun is used. Paramedics treated the band director and took him to hospital to be checked out. Police spokesperson told ABC News upon release from the hospital he was booked into jail. Then he posted bail. He bailed out. No, he didn't bail out. Bonded <laughs> different. out. Bonded out. out, bonded out. Yeah. Bailing out's a totally different scenario. Jefferson County School Superintendent Walter Gonsolin told the ABC he's gathering facts and declined further comment for now. I mean, Taze teacher, that that's yearbook material. I don't think he tased it. Like, it's just, he, he, I think that lady in the TikTok has a valid point. Do you really want to tase teacher yeah, after the high school the football game though, right? in front of the student i know pushing the cop and obviously like that's a tough one that's a tough one but at the same well, time I'm... i wonder why he just didn't stop it's the end of the game why and, and and why why were they so, so upset excited. with him not stopping so excited for him to play yeah. something else might have been going on we don't know but i think that unfortunately if you're going to choose the best example here mm-hmm if you're thinking it from the kid's perspective only, what is the best example that the kids could have learned here is don't push cops. I mean, that's unfortunately, Teach probably gave them the best hard lesson. Um, I mean, you shouldn't push people, anybody, let alone police officers. And um, that's unfortunately the consequence of pushing people, I, I would say. Probably that mm-hmm. part's a good lesson. I don't know. 877-399-9898. Share your thoughts. Are you okay with bears? 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 Uh, bears? Bears? I don't really, really go to bars anymore. Well, not anymore. But you know, when I when I was like nineteen, eighteen, twenty, we'd go to the bar every weekend. You know, we would just uh, go and chill, have a couple of drinks, and go home. That was it. I don't really do that anymore. Uh, now it's just kind of every now and then if we plan it, we'll start at a bar and then we'll wonder, why did we start here? There was no reason for us to start here. We should have just had a beer at home and then gone to the club or wherever we're dancing. So well, that does I, raise I the question, though, it, though. What is a bar now in, today, in today's what world, right? Because bar? there's there's the bar, there's the pub, and then the pubs have really kind of become dancing pubs these days because they put DJs more into pubs. There's not a lot of bars so much as even less nightclubs because festivals and all the things you don't have the same sort of long list of big clubs to go to in most cities edmonton to me probably still has one of the best club cultures toronto of course edmonton's always had pretty good club culture and and in toronto obviously with uh just a myriad of of music and and djs but Mm -hmm. i don't know if we really even know what bars are anymore it's not like it used to be um, are you okay with bars? Uh, Denver police say they're, unless I'm rapping, of course. Then I'm no, not those bars. kinds of bars. No, no. Slight bars is what we use. Denver say. police say they're investigating an apparent open-air pop-up bar for the homeless on the north edge of the city. Police officers and other city officials were at the encampment Monday after Sanchez, uh, after their, ooh. Did, that, wait a minute. Hold on. Is this how would you like to? Would you here? like to translate from well, that one for on, me? Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Did you I... skip over the thing? Nope. Police officers and other city officials were at the encampment Monday after Sanchez. After there, had been. Anyway, um, I, 
Police went oh. to this place. I'm really sure what happened there. People complained. Okay. Ryan's brain. Yep. That's the sound of a brain cell dying. There was numerous complaints, A. <laughs> DPD Patrol Chief Aaron Sanchez says that wasn't the only issue here. With stacks of liquor bottles and turf flooring, police were looking into concerns. This was an open-air sidewalk bar for the homeless. You see it sort of almost looking like a speakeasy bar. What was going on here with all that? We don't know. We have heard the complaints, um, and we've are conducting investigations. The encampment featured a liquor display, recliners, couches, and we saw dozens of empties. We're hearing that there was an open bar, um, sales of alcohol and things like that. So we do have uh, officers that are looking into that. That's CBS News. Now, I don't want to judge, but I'm going to. The If you're going to open up a business... Is it, homeless people typically are not associated with financial affluence to be big spenders, you know? Well, actually, I think it's the opposite, unfortunately, because so this was essentially a bar inside of a homeless encampment, right? That's what was set up. Mm-hmm. So clearly they got the liquor in. And unfortunately, homeless people are often drinking way more than the average person and so they probably were just only spending whatever cash they had on hand there at this yeah i get that but i mean i i don't think it's a lot of money like i don't think they're dropping 400 like some people go to the bar and do you know um anyway i'm assuming a lot of course uh megan shea director of development and marketing at step denver said she had been driving by the encampment every morning on her way to work and noticed the apparent bar she said an encampment serving liquor to the unhoused was counterproductive, noting that one report said over 80% of the homeless have experienced lifetime alcohol and or drug problems. Well, I mean, look, I don't judge people for what they do with their lives. The reality is, is that regardless if there's a bar or not a bar, it's not like they're like, oh, we're going to drink today because there's a bar here. They were going to either find their drugs or find their alcohol, no matter where it was. It just became less of a walk. Right. Mm. Um, I had a friend that said that to me once about giving money to homeless people. Some people say, don't give money to homeless people, right? Give food or whatever. Well, people, they barter food or shoes or whatever for money or, or drugs or alcohol, right? I mean, that's a thing. And I, I had a friend of mine, and I, I don't know if I agree with it, but I did find it. I found it, it, it hit me a little bit where he said, look, if you're going to give money to somebody who's homeless, and if it means that they're going to do whatever they're going to do, then give them the money and let them go do what they're going to do. Because you're probably mm-hmm. giving them some peace of whatever it is they look for. Don't judge them for it. Don't give them money and say, don't drink, go buy a sandwich. Just give them the 10 bucks, and then they're probably going to do what they're going to do. Yep. And don't judge them for it. And because you could be giving them at least their perception of the best peace of mind that they can get. So I, it, it might perpetuate the problem. I, not giving money to a homeless person at a stoplight doesn't seem to have fixed homelessness. So it's clearly not a thing. I can tell you this, though. I pulled up to a stoplight one day, and this is, this is a good example of me losing touch with the reality of life. I was driving from the radio station. I was coming uh, home. Ryan, you know where it is in Calgary. For those in Calgary, I was going northbound on 14th Street, right in the Beltline there where uh, 11th and 12th cross the one ways on 14th street northbound and a guy comes up to the window and he just kind of looks inside and i rolled down the window i said i don't have money but i have a sandwich 
And I reached out to hand it to him, and he reached in the car and he snatched it. And the first thing on my mind, I said to him, be careful, I put too much pepper on it. (laughs) Because that was what I was worried about with the sandwich. This person was clearly so hungry, half the sandwich was gone before I finished the sentence. And it was such a good reminder how my perspective of judging somebody was so wrong. Because for them, they could have cared less about pepper, right? It was just about food. And and that goes to show when you pull up to that stoplight or whatever and do that. And I have a couple of friends. What they do is they will collect granola bars, right, that the kids don't eat or, you know, that you don't like them so much and whatever, and they'll have a Ziploc bag. They'll put it in the glovey or the console in the car. And then when they arrive at... Um, situations like that, they'll give up granola bars. Oh, that's awesome. Right. Right. So, I mean, mm. who, who are we to judge really is kind of what I'm, I'm getting down to with that one. But somebody found opportunity, I guess, in it by opening a bar. I can think of better places to maybe open a bar, but I guess if you're, if it was working, hmm, math. Okay. Are you okay with meteors? Meteors. Really one. I found one one time. Or maybe it's an astro. I'm not sure. But I found a space rock on a beach once. It was really mm. cool. I was digging mm. it. My Uncle Bernie helped me out. And uh, How did you know it was found a space it? rock? Uh, because it did had... Did it say Acme on it? It did not say Acme. And Marvin the Martian's trademark was not on it. No, uh, are you But sure? it did have hundreds of little holes in it and uh it was like the rock was just different like it was clearly i still have it around here somewhere probably mm. it was just a small little small little space rock that was on the hmm. beach in Cologne. where's the kaboom Ooh. there was Ooh. supposed to be an earth shattering kaboom in my ears that's where the kaboom was <laughs> sorry that was a little loud sorry jonah <laughs> um astronomers in ireland were thrilled after discovering a giant hole on a local beach they thought it might have been the site of a meteor strike, but the all reason that hole, but the reason that hole was there wasn't out of this world. Now, finally, at this lunchtime, the mystery of the hole on the North Dublin beach has apparently been solved, denting the hopes of a local space enthusiast who had hoped it was the site of a meteor strike. But footage emerged last night of two men digging a hole on Port Marnock Beach. Local astrophysics buff David Kennedy was startled by the discovery and thought a rock he found in the hole might have come from the skies above. Today, he says he's disappointed, but he's still getting the rock analysed in the hopes that it wasn't a completely fruitless discovery. Uh, That's from Virgin News. Uh, The guy who found the hole after he found out this news of this video footage said, on second thought, the shovels gave it away. <laughs> have you seen the theory that like at the beach men have a un like an a natural desire to dig a hole it's all over tiktok Mm-mm. i'm i'm in this camp when i go to the beach i either want to build a sandcastle or dig a hole that's that's it i don't know why can't explain it but that's what this story is that's why those guys dug that hole there's video of them doing it it's just because mm. they wanted to dig a big hole that's it never had the urge right never had the never urge. Never, never, man. Let me have a nap, sit, read, ponder, listen to some Hawaiian music. 
I'm all good. Virgin interviewed local astrophysics enthusiast Dave Kennedy, who is certain that a rock inside the hole was an asteroid that came from above. Hope it didn't come from below. As you can tell, here's a scorch mark on this side here, so that would have been at the angle that it came down at. A video widely shared on social media revealed that three men, Charlie Wallace, Peter McAvoy, and Charles Flood, of course, it seems very Irish to actually name the guys, dug the hole with three plastic green shovels. At least they were green like Martians. Yep. That's nice. Okay. Are you okay with CEOs? Um, no. Uh... <laughs> I don't know. Like some of them are cool, doing cool stuff. Uh, but I got to say, uh, income disparity. I'm watching Succession right now, which is a show about like billionaires trying to, you know, build their empire and keep it alive. And uh, that show is like dismantles everything wrong with the richest of the richest. And it just makes me a little, I got to say, it makes me a little angry. I'm not sure if it's mm-hmm. jealousy or a general like disdain for uh, like people that, uh, not it's not like the idea of like having that much wealth it's just like the idea that like they have so much and i have no idea how i could ever get there or do i even want to get there it's a really weird how to get there do you want to know how to get there investing stonks no in no uh no take on the same amount of responsibility a ceo takes on um the amount of responsibility a ceo takes on is staggering that they have to do and so I have, I, it's funny how you see it as money and uh, separation and class disparity. I see it as responsibility and leadership. Like it's, it's hmm. totally, totally different. It's not about the money at all. I mean, the, the budgets that these people are working with, the tens of thousands of employees in some cases, it's staggering and impressive what they go through. Nowadays, it's not easy to relate to CEOs for some people, money, power, all those things. There are people that become CEO career people. That's what they do. They bounce from business to business and Undercover Boss was created to take those CEOs into the workforce. Great show. Now, the boss pretends to be a normal worker, new hire, whatever, interacting with common workers and learn about their business. Now, as highlighted in the brilliant SNL sketch where Kylo Ren, the leader of the evil First Order from Star Wars, went undercover as a radar technician named Matt. Have you guys seen Kylo Ren's lightsaber? Yeah, man, that thing's weird looking. No, it's not. It's awesome. Here, let me go see if I can find it. I'll show it to you. Look, I found Kylo Ren's lightsaber. Look at it up close. That thing looks dangerous, man. Poorly made. The little kid made it. Then you don't have to look at it anymore! Uh, I'm 90% sure Matt is Kylo Ren. Yeah, this has actually been a rough year for my family. We lost our son back in April. He was in the Stormtrooper program. And um, we're getting by. Well, man. Sorry about that. Must be hard hearing that Zach lost his son. Really struck a nerve with me. Especially since I'm the one that killed him. (laughs) A CEO in today's story has also tried to get some new perspective, just not undercover, though. The CEO of Lufthansa Airlines, Jens Ritter, hopped on one of his planes and worked as a flight attendant crew member. Had to do some training while Ritter has been a pilot with Lufthansa. This was his first experience as cabin crew. Sometimes you need to change perspectives in order to gain new insights. This week, I accompanied our Lufthansa Airlines flight crew heading to Riyadh. 
in Bahrain as additional crew member. Now, what a ride. I've been working for Lufthansa Group for many years, and I have never had the opportunity to work as part of the cabin crew. And honestly, that was so interesting and challenging, he wrote in his post. Mr. Ritter, Mr. Ritter said that it was a challenging experience, and he was amazed at how much there is to organize before a flight. I was amazed by how much there is to organize, especially if something doesn't go as planned. For example, meals offered in the cabin. Menu cards were not exactly as the meals loaded on board. We'll have to have this fixed, he said. So what would you learn if your boss did your job for a day? Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.